from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Uh, as we prepare our hearts for the worship of God this day, we are uh, so very mindful of the shadow of that which has taken place over the past two days in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, and so as we prepare our hearts for worship, let me offer these brief words. Uh, Nazism is still alive. Uh, white supremacy ideologies are still shaping the hearts and minds of fellow citizens. Bigotry is real. And Nazism, white supremacy, bigotry, let me just say, are completely and totally incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have no place in the Christian church. So as we think of, of Charlottesville, uh, even as we've thought of so many other cities in recent days, in recent months, so many other people, both in our country and around the world. I would like for us, as we set off in this hour of worship, to affirm who we're called to be as a church and to affirm the God in whose presence we gather under and what this God is all about. Let me remind us that we are a people who value authentic diversity, building relationships that honor one another as children of God. We're people of radical hospitality, sharing with all the welcome we receive in Jesus Christ. We are people of restorative relationships, seeking reconciliation with God and one another. And we are a church, using the words of the Confession of 1967, that sees the life, death, and resurrection and promise coming of Jesus Christ as the pattern for our mission. His human life involves the church in the common life of all people. His service to men and women commits the church to work for every form of human well-being. His suffering makes the church sensitive to all human sufferings so that it sees the face of Christ in the faces of persons in every kind of need. His crucifixion discloses to the church God's judgment on the inhumanity that marks human relations and the awful consequences of the church's own complicity in injustice. In the power of the risen Christ and the hope of his coming, the church, says the confession, sees the promise of God's renewal of human life in society and of God's victory over all wrong. This is the God who we worship in this hour. So let us now prepare our hearts to receive this Lord.
Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 1 through 4 and 12 through 28, which can be found on page 32 of the Old Testament portion of your pew Bible. Listen now for God's word to us this morning. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They said they saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might res rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they th took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And then they took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like the Genesis 37 text, this text from Romans, the 10th chapter, is part of the lectionary the three-year cycle of texts that set the rhythm and pace of the church's reading of Scripture. Paul writes in verses 5 through 15 these words. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. 
But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him and how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, schools of journalism now have a name for it. They call it the glass is half full beat. The glass is half full beat. These are the journalists and the news outlets that are committed to telling more of, or maybe even telling exclusively, good stories. Good news stories. Outlets like Upworthy and the Good News Network are examples of this wave of journalism. They want to give people stories about puppies and popsicles. They want to give uh, stories of nostalgia. Remember all of those 1990s sitcom stars? Here they are in a slideshow. Click and check it out. Even in the most challenging of news cycles, these outlets, these journalists want to find the silver lining. They are committed to telling good news stories. Even Ariana Huffington of the Huffington Post is encouraging her company to make this turn. In a memo to her staff in the winter of 2015, she said that we need, I quote, to start a positive contagion by relentlessly telling the stories of people and communities doing amazing things overcoming great odds and facing real challenges with perseverance, creativity, and grace. Now, I like a good news story. I do want to hear about people who are doing amazing things. 
I want to hear about folks who have overcome great odds, who face real challenges, who have offered real solutions, who have demonstrated perseverance, creativity, and grace. But there is a danger here we have to be aware of. Alexander Nazarian wrote a piece a few years ago for Newsweek entitled, The Bad News About Good News. The Bad News About Good News. In it, he takes on this popsicle and puppy type of journalism. He says this, Seen in this context, good news of the kind Huffington now seeks to promote is actually a public menace. It's sirenic, a call to blindness, a quote-unquote happy filter placed on a world that is often good but frequently not. It may be inspirational, it may be uplifting, but it precludes having to do any real work, whether in thought or in action. If happiness reigns, you might as well relax. He goes on, but some of us don't want to spend our day in enraptured ignorance, tending to our precious chakras. We want to be engaged, even with a world that is often aggravating, distressing, and painful. It's like the beloved lefty bumper sticker affixed to so many dusty old Volvos. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Or rather, you might be paying too much attention to the upworthy version of the world in all its happy unreality. This morning, when Luke and I were on our way to church, we stopped off at Dunkin' Donuts to get a bacon, egg, and cheese bagel. And I had the Christian radio station on. I'm not going to tell you its call sign, but it was on, and all of a sudden it ran a promo that went something like this. The world is filled with bad news every day. Isn't it so good to turn it all off and to turn our radio station on and just worship God? May I humbly suggest that turning it all off has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with the story of God in and as and through the person called Jesus the Christ. May I humbly suggest that this is not only terrible theology, it is dangerous theology. The whole arc of the gospel story bends toward the historical reality that God does not turn away from bad news. It's just the opposite. God fully turns on the bad news, is aware of the bad news called sin and disenfranchisement and dissonance and broken relationships, and God turns to the bad news and enters into it to bring good news. In and as the person of Jesus the Christ, God enters into the discord and division. God enters into lives where there is brokenheartedness. God enters into oppression 
God is with the marginalized, the left out, and the left behind. The gospel story is about how God enters the bad news with and as good news. When brothers and sisters throw each other into the pit, God does not turn away. God is right there. God is working in the bad news, bringing good news, living as good news. I think this is an important theological conviction to remember, especially as we engage this text from Paul, the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. And I want to look at this text by asking two specific and discrete questions. There is this line that Paul borrows from from the prophet Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And I want to ask two questions here of that line. First, whose feet are we talking about? Whose feet are we talking about? And second, what is the good news that they bring? To the first question, whose feet are we talking about? The great reformer Martin Luther was was fond of reading Romans 10 in a particular way. He had this same question on his mind. Who are we talking about here who has beautiful feet, who's bringing good news? And he interpreted Paul's words here to speak specifically about the office of the preacher. Specifically about the office of the pastor. When he reviewed Paul's list of rhetorical questions, he was thinking of someone specific But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? Luther responded to that series of questions with these words. Christ teaches us to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into his harvest. That is faithful preachers. Faithful preachers. Luther thought this passage was about the office of the pastor. The preacher is to have beautiful feet because they are called to bring the good news. And that, friends, is true. Preachers ought to have beautiful feet because preachers should be about the business of bearing witness to good news. If preaching is bringing only bad news, something is wrong. The preacher ought to bring good news. Therefore, the preacher ought to have beautiful feet. And while Luther makes his case using sort of an ecclesiastical argument as he interprets the scriptures, it has also been said that that Luther's vision of this isn't isn't expansive enough, that more people need to be included in this. And and with the empowerment of the, the laity that is born out of the Protestant intuition, we've also heard it said that, that the church ought to have beautiful feet. That you and me together collectively ought to be proclaiming good news. In fact, the very constitution of the Presbyterian Church says this about what it means to be a member. Membership in the Church of Christ is a joy and privilege. It is also a commitment to participate in Christ's mission. A faithful member bears witness to God's love and grace and promises to be involved responsibly in the ministry of Christ's church. Such involvement includes proclaiming the good news in word and deed. 
Beautiful feet don't just belong to the preacher. Beautiful feet belong to the church. And while this is true, I wonder if Paul had someone else in mind when he asked his rhetorical question. When he listed this series of questions about the one who brings good news and who has beautiful feet. Yes, the preacher should have beautiful feet. Yes, the church should have beautiful feet. But was Paul thinking about the preacher? Was Paul thinking about the church? Maybe. But could it be that Paul, in this instance, was talking about someone else? Could it be that he was talking about Jesus himself? For Jesus is the one who has come and declared once and for all the good news of God, for he is the good news of God. God sent him into the world as the herald of good news. Right? Remember how he begins his ministry at the age of 30 in that town called Nazareth in the synagogue where he picks up the Isaiah scroll and he says these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Whose feet is Paul talking about? Whose feet are beautiful beyond fault and blemish? Only the feet of Jesus the Christ. And this Jesus does not turn away from the darkness. He does not turn away from bad news. He is good news. He brings good news even in the darkest of days. Jesus brings good news to those who are anxious about all sorts of things. Jesus brings good news to those who fear for their future. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, he says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying at a single hour to your span of life, and why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Friends, that is good news. Jesus brings good news to those who wonder if they have enough faith to face this hour. And he says, for truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Friends, that is good news. Jesus brings good news to those who are carrying a heavy load. He says, come to me, all you that are weary, and who are carrying a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, that is good news. 
Jesus brings good news to the lonely and the lost. He says, I've come to seek and save the lost. I will not leave you orphaned. Lo, he says, I am with you even to the end of the age. That is good news. Jesus brings good news to those justice seekers, those who fight bigotry in all forms, including Nazism and white supremacy, to those who what we in the church call social righteousness. He says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Friends, that is good news. Jesus brings good news to those who wonder if they can make a difference in this messed up world. And he says... You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. He says later, for you will do even greater things than I. That's good news. Jesus brings good news to the dying, those who are dying spiritual deaths, those who are dying psychological and emotional deaths, those who are dying physical deaths. And he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Friends, that is good news. Jesus Christ brings good news because he is the good news in the midst of bad news. He doesn't turn away from it. And he is, in the words of the Barman Declaration, the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. He is our good news. He is the one we can trust. He is the one that forgives and justifies. He is the great reconciler. He is the great peacemaker. He is the one who saves. Call on his name. Confess him with your lips and your life. Get up off your knees and stand on those beautiful feet and serve his purposes in the world. Crown him your Lord. For he is indeed Lord of all things. Thanks be to God for that good news. Amen. Jesus the Christ has beautiful feet, unblemished and perfect. For he is the bearer of good news because he is the good news we need right now. He calls us to stand up on our feet and to have them be beautiful as we tell the story of his love for a broken and hurting world. Let us tell that story. May our feet be beautiful as we bear good news in all places and to all people. And may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. May his peace and his love abide in your hearts this day 
and all the days of your life. Amen.